Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up today, part two of the political editors. Lots of nice messages about the interview yesterday with Fred Emery. Today, it's a special interview because it's with Julian Haviland, who sadly died earlier this month. But I spoke to him only a few weeks before he died to talk to him about his time as political editor of The Times. Some extraordinary stories coming up. It's some extraordinary memories, even going right back to Alec Douglas Hume. But also some extraordinary stories that he couldn't publish about the Queen. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at the day's news for today's columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. And we say hello to Danny Finkelstein, who's here at the studio. Hello, Danny. Hello. Good to see you. And Jenny Russell. Hello, Jenny. Good morning. Um, and, uh, Jenny, nice to have you with us. Uh, let's start with your comment today in The Times. You've been writing about crime and how shoplifting has been effectively decriminalised. Well, uh, a few weeks ago, I had the Met Police Commissioner, Mark Rowley, in the studio, on the show, and I asked him exactly that, whether he thought people had a licence to shoplift. Well, there's not a licence to commit any sort of crime. Of course, we do prioritise crime and we spend more time investigating stabbings than we do shoplifting um, but nothing's licensed and yet and yet Jenny the reality is you write in, in the paper today is, is a bit different yeah he's talking nonsense basically he has to say that kind of stuff when he's on the radio but he knows perfectly well what the statistics are I mean the fact is that um, the British Re- Retail Consortium which represents about two thirds of all retailers says that they now having about 8 million shoplifting offences a year in their shops, and yet, which has doubled in the past six years, and yet the number of people actually appearing in court on shoplifting charges is is down by 75%. And in fact, that means that there just isn't any penalty for shoplifting. And shopkeepers are increasingly being told by the police who won't attend any incidents themselves just to let it go. So it means it's 
paying for things in shops has become voluntary, and that's absolutely disastrous. Danny, what do you make of this? Well, first of all, can I just say what an amazing column that is, <laughs> Jenny. You know, sometimes when you write columns in the paper, you have a combination of feeling great, there's really interesting things in the paper, you feel educated reading it, but also as a columnist, you think, oh, that's quite annoying because I didn't write it myself. <laughs> um, that was one of those columns. You are, you're bang on. And actually, I'd just been hearing about this debate taking place in the United States where they've been taught, where some cities have essentially written off crimes below $1,000. And of course, lots of crimes below $1,000 are being committed with impunity. And you wrote about that really well in a British context, which, uh, you know, which was uh, shocking and completely correct. And obviously, if you allow crime to take place at this low level, this is the previous discovery of zero tolerance policing you you will get crimes built on that when the police in new york started to arrest people for jumping over the turnstiles in this subway they found they were arresting people who had warrants out for their arrest for all sorts of other things or had you know firearms in their pocket and if you don't if you do this with it's not just the crimes that you can see it's all the the infrastructure you talked in your in your a piece about gangs you know if you let a gang operate with impunity of that kind it'll get bigger and bolder and you will only then stop it when it finally murders someone and i was really struck uh jenny in your column you're talking about you spoke to your your local uh shopkeeper um he said people walk out with things all the time wine and bags of coffee and all sorts and so he said specifically when people steal things from his shop, the police never come, no action is taken. Even when he sends them to CTTV, he says, they tell me just to let them take it. Yeah, I mean, that's the official advice, which is don't confront anyone. And as this poor little shopkeeper said, some of the people that he challenges have got knives strapped to their arms. And he's not inclined to challenge them anyway. But the official advice is you can't do anything and you, have, you aren't authorised to do anything and it would be dangerous to do anything, but we're not coming. Can I, can I ask you one question, um, Jenny, about yeah. it? About, it was like, very interesting. So there was one assertion, you probably know, which is what's coming from me, given we've had this discussion before, which was about the funding of the police and austerity and its relationship with this policy. Well, let's accept, obviously, the more money you put into something, the more things the police can do. And we don't need to get into the debate about whether we needed that policy or not. But do you feel that if the police re prioritized uh, at whatever given amount of money they had uh, they would be able to deal with this problem is this partly an issue of priority uh, with a lot of time spent um, you know for example on kind of you know online non-hate crimes or whatever the uh, phrase is um, or, or do you think it's just that they really can't cope I think it's a combination of both things. So I think you're absolutely right that they are being told to concentrate on other things. And I wish that they would leave a lot of social media alone. Um, but I also think, and it's also signals from the government. One of the problems here is that the government in 2014 redefined shoplifting of anything under £200 in almost every case as um, a, a summary offence, which meant that both it could be dealt with by the magistrate's court and somebody who pleaded guilty doesn't even need to turn up to court any longer. They can just write in by post saying I'm guilty and I'll probably get a £70 fine. So that's if you're charged. And the consequence of that is that the police got the signal from the government that no one's interested politically in their pursuing 
an issue like this and that it's not very important. Shops equally, if they pursue any shopkeepers themselves in prosecutions, um, they can't get their costs back for any shoplifting of less than £200. So the police are being told it's not important. They also know that the courts now are so clogged up and there's such a backlog that probably even if they pursue anyone, it'll be a very long time before they go to court and probably nothing will happen in the end. So I think there's a pervading sense of hopelessness. Now, if, if people were told, if there was a zero tolerance policing approach adopted in, in London, if people were told, yes, every crime matters, we start at the bottom, you discourage people from thinking that crime is fine because as, as Danny says, so um, directly, once you start saying to young people in particular, you, you can steal and there will be no consequences, then they start building criminal networks on the basis of that. And they think, why should I stick to any other rules? Jenny, I, I think um, well, that, that, that you put your finger on a very important point when you talked about the courts. An awful lot of, I think, the criminal uh, problems of crime begin in the fact that we're underfunding the court system yes. rather than the police. I agree. Um, and And... Of all, and I'm normally very resistant to saying we should spend more money on because you can you can say that about everything, right? Because if you spend more money on things, you get more of it. Um, but uh, I I do actually think we've underfunded the court system, and you can see it creaking. And when you talk about making this a summary offence, this is that is basically a surrender uh, because of the court system. Yeah. Uh, and yes. so I think if you can get that right, um, you're right. In, you, I think the police will probably will adjust their um, behaviour. You know, Tom Whipple, our, our colleague on The Times, wrote and has been writing a series of articles or, and tweets about his bicycle that was stolen and how the police wouldn't pursue the CCTV. And when, when he finally got the CCTV himself, it was unusable. And he said that's why the police didn't pursue it. In other words, the police are not going to spend their time doing something. They think ultimately will run into the sand or will be a summary offence. They just won't, they won't do it. So I think if we can get that right, maybe that is the answer to, or, or at least some way of addressing the problems that you raise, but they're totally fascinating. But all, I mean, the, the other element you sort of throw into this, because the reason we had Mark Rowley on uh, a, a few weeks ago was I also went out with the Met for the for the afternoon in Peckham, and, you know, was out and about with two officers. Uh, yes, we had a press officer with us, but they were pretty open about everything that, that went on, and they said they, they'd seen in the last year or so, as a result of the cost of living crisis, a rise in the number of reports of shoplifting. I suppose there's two things going on there. One is uh, people who genuinely can't afford to buy things, but also the value of the things you're stealing now has suddenly gone up. That the, you know, wine has gone up, and or meat meat seems to be stolen a lot. That's gone up, um, and so that's sort of feeding into as well. So you've got an already overstretched police force. People feeling the pinch might be more inclined to steal. The people who want to steal stuff for profit are more inclined to because the things they can easily steal are worth more money, and then the courts can't cope with it. I bet there's another element to it, which is that uh, the cost of living uh, crisis, as well as giving people an incentive uh, to to steal because of the value of the goods, also kind of gives them an excuse to themselves for doing it uh, and makes people feel less bad about doing it because they think, well, we're taking this money off uh, rich, big companies, and so, um, you know, who cares about them? Yeah. Yeah, no, yes, yeah. you can hardly say that, of course, of all the little independent local grocers for a start. And well, secondly, it, where, interestingly, where, where, people do say that. So, that, that, you know, that, that's what's so interesting about some of the, the kind of right. If you see that amazing Spike Lee uh, film uh, in which um, the uh, they end up bombing the pizzeria and the Korean superstore, and it was because those were as far as they were concerned, the rich people in their area. So people sometimes overestimate um, the amount of money that yeah, yeah. some of these businesses are bringing in and don't think 
actually these pe- these businesses are right on the breadline. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The other thing to bear in mind though is they, that the co-op, which is after all run for the benefit of its members and isn't making profits that go elsewhere, um, both Co-op and John Lewis saying a lot of what's going on is organised crime and the Co-op says yes. that a huge amount of it is that when you hear stories about people stealing meat or baby milk and you think, goodness, they just want to feed their baby. No, on the whole they don't. What's happening is that thieves are taking things like baby milk and meat and coffee and wine because they're easily resellable down the pub. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's definitely an element playing into that. Well, it's a cracking column, uh, Jenny, as Danny, Danny said, and it's really good Thanks, to be able to Danny. shine a light, Thanks, shine a light on it. There we go. Um, let's move on and talk about, because we're sort of now deep into, I think, the, the Greens today selecting their candidate for the uh, uh, Rutherglen by-election. We're deep into sort of party selection uh, season. Uh, Dev Hindry's written a piece of Conservative Home today saying that a trend the, the Conservative Party's uh, selecting... Uh, very local people, local people for local local seats, um, uh, Danny. More, perhaps more than yeah. more than normal. What does that tell us about where the, the Tory Party is? And it's- well, it's, it's. I mean, look, it, it's a, it's an incentive yeah. uh, that people are um, are under, particularly when they're under a lot of political pressure, and where they think the national message may not be as uh, strong as it was before. So, therefore, uh, having people locally, and then there's and there's just been a general trend towards it. And I, I think this piece is right to say there's there's that's slightly difficult, but. The, the Liberal Democrats had this uh, issue where they, it was impossible to say who, which seats they would win, and therefore they would get a collection of local people. That's how Jeremy Thorpe ended up being leader of the Liberal Party. You know, there weren't very many MPs, and he was the most talented, but the fact that he was eccentric and, unre- and as it turned out, unre- you know, a fantasist and unreliable, um, that, that wasn't, you know, it was important to, yeah. to the people who were selecting him, and he was an amazing candidate for his seat. So... Um, yeah, I think it is an issue. And and if we look at the last leadership election for the Conservative Party, with all, you know, unfortunately, they hadn't um, necessarily uh, filtered for quality. But nevertheless, one of the things that was encouraging about it was a, a lot of ethnic uh, representation, which was a conscious policy of the centre to alter the, the, the distribution of abilities yeah. and the qualities of their candidates. And I think the party has to engage in that all the time. As the centre of the party, you cannot abdicate entirely the responsibility for your candidate selection to local parties. They have to be strongly involved. That's vital too. But you can't um, you can't just abdicate. Yeah. Um, Jenny, the counterpoint to this is I know when Rishi Sunak was selected in... Uh, his seat, Richmond in Yorkshire, he was up against a very local candidate, Wendy Morton, who actually got selected elsewhere. And actually in their seat, because they'd had William Hague uh, previously, Leon Britton, I think, in the MP there before, they wanted someone who was going to be like a big figure. They actually didn't... There was some slight snobbishness about the local local candidate. And actually, in a way, you want... Don't you want like, local associations to be like selecting the next Prime Minister rather than essentially a glorified sort of county councillor? Yes, I, I would argue very strongly for that because I think the whole of the country suffers when you've got politicians of very low calibre. And one of the problems for the Conservatives at the moment is not least because Boris Johnson got rid of a whole raft of decent moderate Tories and expelled them from the party. You've got um, a very limited range of, 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 of talent in the party and, and we see the consequences. I think Suella Braverman, for instance, is totally not up to the job of being Home Secretary. Um, but there's not much of a pool of talent beneath her. You know, and not- shame that parties can't see beyond their own narrow um, constituency boundaries. I mean, both Rupert Harrison and Nick Timothy, who are, yeah. you know, who range at different time, uh, 
you know, of different areas of agreement and disagreement with both those people. They're very high quality people, both of them. So people can get selected, and it's very important that it's they are. Taken them a selected. very long time, though. It's taken a very long it has, time. It has. It has. It's, it has. You're quite right. And I, I did. I began to think neither of them would get selected, but it's interesting that they have been. And what's interesting also is that is not. What was interesting about that is they weren't local, but they also weren't ideological candidates. Yeah. You know, so so Nick Timothy had worked for Theresa May, obviously, but but Rupert Harrison uh, opposed Brexit and support and worked as chief of staff for George Osborne. So it, it is, I think that's a that's yeah. at least a small sign of yeah. encouragement. Now, talking of uh, Rishi Sunak as we were, he visited the Busy Bee Nursery in Harrogate yesterday, alongside Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, and the two of them are asked to draw a bee. Uh, this was the reaction. Right. Yeah. Don't judge for her. There we go. Uh, there we go. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I think when the Prime Minister's there, you've got to clap regardless. I mean, he could have drawn, he could literally have drawn anything. Well, how good uh, was it? How does his B compare? Uh, Tom Whipple's written in the Times today, it's short on legs, it looks like it would struggle to take flight and it appears somewhat lacking in vision. No, it's not Rishi Sunak's latest policy proposal. It's the Prime Minister's painting of a bee. Uh, Laura Freeman is the time his chief art critic and joins us uh, now as well. Hi, Laura. Hi, yeah. So go on, how, how good is Rishi Sunak? Is, if all goes wrong at the next election, has he got a future as, a, as an artist? No, but um, my heart my, my heart does go out to him a little bit. I mean, answering questions about the small boats policy while in a classroom full of three-year-olds, <laughs> while drawing a bee that will be held up to scrutiny by the world's media and their art critics, um, it's not an easy gig. Um, I actually think his bee is better than Gillian Keegan's. Um, you know, hers is sort of more convincing, and she's probably the better draftsman. Well, it looks like a bee, Laura. The big difference is Gillian Keegan's looks like a bee. But I would say it's a very derivative bee. Oh, okay. It looks like she's just copying a cartoon bee, whereas I feel Rishi sort of captured the very essence of bee, you know, it's sort of got, it sort of vibrates, it's it's restless, it's busy, um, it, it feels really like a, you know, a real life bee. Right. Uh, what, what did you make it? <laughs> what do you make of it, Danny? <laughs> I, I think it doesn't it float like a bee and sting like a butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> Je Jenny, does it matter? I mean, it is a sort of thankless task. Whenever a politician goes into a school, something happens. There was a picture of was it was it Theresa May or David Cameron went to a school and a child sort of put, put their head on the desk. Um, no good comes from you know that never work with children and animals, Jenny. Actually, it's one of the few moments that I've admired Rishi Sunak. I thought he was completely unembarrassed about his terrible bee, and I think Laura there was just showing the normal art critic's prejudice against representational art. Gillian <laughs> <laughs> Keegan's is a much better bee, because Sunak wasn't doing anything Picasso-like. He was just being incompetent, but sort of charmingly incompetent and unembarrassed about being incompetent. It's a good point, think, Laura. Where do you draw the line between, um, you know, uh, talent, like genius, and just incompetence? <laughs> Well, I, I would take the view that if you're not terribly good, and I'm not terribly good, I can kind of just about, you know, wield a paintbrush, but you might as well do something a bit abstract expressionist, you know, if you can't do something that has much verisimilitude. <laughs> um, and I, I, I feel he, he, he did that. It's sort of got a bit of a, a bit of a monk feeling, a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a German abstract expressionist, a bit of Picasso, maybe a bit of Eve Klein in those blue, blue waves at the top oh. and the blue wings. Um, but, 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 you know, it, it, in all honesty, no, it is not a contender for um, next summer's oh. RH. I would undoubtedly have drawn a large letter B if I was asked to draw a B. Um, uh, both, both because it represents my painting limitations, but also because it's just an instinct of mine to make a pun out of almost everything. 
I think what it should do, Matt, is encourage all of us to get out there with a paintbrush because it doesn't matter how appalling we are. It reminds us that it's just fun to do it. it. Just most fun. Of us, if yeah, we're not good at it, we shouldn't do it. And actually, that's the wrong lesson we learned from school. Danny Finkelstein and Jenny Russell. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. And if you're a student, here's some exciting news. You can now get a special student subscription to The Times. It's £9.99 a year. £9.99 a year. So if you've been thinking about getting a subscription for a while and you're a student, then you can get it uh, £9.99 per year for three years. Just go online and subscribe right now. Right, up next, it's part two of The Political Editors today with Julian Havillard. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. It is time to put up or shut up. A new dawn has broken, has it not? This is a decisive moment for the world economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party. Growth, growth and growth. Some mistakes were made. Half a century of politics told by the people who wrote the first draft of history for The Times. This is The Political Editors. For this episode, Julian Haviland on making the journey from political editor of ITN to The Times, his memories of Thatcher, Wilson, Alec Douglas Hume, and a remarkable story about the Queen he never got to publish. The Queen was watching this on telly, and when the horses went in and rode through some of the miners and not through the island, the Queen said words to the Oh, that's awful. She took an extremely large scotch. Her husband, Dennis, was the one who said a drink like the drain. But Margaret had quite a capacity. Now, this is a particularly special episode of The Political Editors because Julian Haviland died earlier this month, exactly a month after our interview. 
His career spanned a remarkable period of British history and he was known for his exacting journalistic standards, his persistence and impartiality, but also for his affable and courteous manner, as you'll hear during the course of our interview. He started out in journalism at the Surrey Advertiser before moving to South Africa and reporting for the Johannesburg Star. Returning to London, he began his television career at ITN, first as a reporter, and then eventually, in 1975, he became ITN's political editor. He met every Prime Minister from Alec Douglas Hume onwards. But let's start with his thoughts on Harold Wilson, who first led Labour to a narrow election victory in 1964. Harold Wilson was a lovely man. Tories thought he was damn clever but nasty. We've got a job to do. We can only do that job as one people. And I'm going right in to start that job now. The truth is the opposite. He, he, he often made quite serious mistakes. As a human being, he's very warm and pleasant. And he once lent his house in the series to Ray Gunter, who had been one of the transport union representatives. And Ray disappeared because he had cancer. They spent several weeks. We now see what happened to him. One day, they was back in the lobbies and uh, spitting blood. Almost literally, I said, Ray, what's up with you? Do you know what what that little sentence has done to me? That little sentence says, Wilson, who we hated. And he said, I said, no, of course I didn't. Well, he's lent me his cottage in the cities to get better. And it's made a remarkable difference to my recover. And Ray was very upset because Wilson has shot his own fox, as it were. And so no longer go around saying what a swine the man was. And he came back to me after a few seconds and said, by the way, the little so-and-so says I mustn't tell anybody, so <laughs> keep it to yourself. So I thought Wilson came rather well after that. I, I did he was all that good a Prime Minister. He had his flaws. But as a human being, he could be quite delightful. And he was generous. I think not being Alec Hume helped <laughs> because he seemed more like an ordinary bloke. But he's quite clever at getting headlines too and he had a good staff around him who helped him. There was Julian Haviland's view of Howard Wilson, seemingly a decent and warm man who made some poor political decisions. Well, it was certainly a far more favourable impression than that made by Ted Heath, who defeated Wilson to enter Downing Street in 1970. He was as doer as everybody would think. I never discussed personal matters, actually, with, with my colleagues. I never have done. He didn't often crack a joke. At least we did. It wasn't particularly funny. And he was not easily accessible to any except a few lobby correspondents. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't think I can characterize him. He was a dull man, essentially. He did terribly well in life and in politics. But he had very few friends. Well, sadly, he was lonely. He was a bit solitary. Julian Hammond's view of the solitary Ted Heath. Well, Julian also had a tricky relationship with James Callaghan. Before entering number 10, Callaghan was Howard Wilson's chancellor. But he resigned after being forced to devalue the pound. Wilson immediately brought him back as Home Secretary. 
Speaking for myself, I think there's a lot to be said for the pound. Every one of us in Britain's familiar with it. We know what it stands for. Abroad, they know what it stands for. And it's as good a system as any other system you could find. So the pound and the penny, two old coins and units, they hold the day. Sutherland and I didn't much get on. It didn't matter. Things got better after a bit. But when he had to resign at the time of the devaluation as uh, Chancellor and became Home Secretary, he came to the ITN studios and he was so smug about it. He said, well, it was my duty to resign because I was Chancellor after all and I thought it was time that um, someone took my place. And he, he was so smug I couldn't help saying, well, you didn't do so badly, did you? Because you jumped out of the treasury and you're now Home Secretary. It came out ruder than I normally like to be, and you would have struck me uh, <laughs> if we hadn't been live on <laughs> So we never get friends, but I did admire him. Uh, Julian Hammond recalling uh, Jim Callaghan's decision to resign as Chancellor and explain the two didn't go on to the, uh, so, well, to the point that he, he thought that Jim Callaghan uh, might have punched him. Well, Julian Hammond was known... Well, to the nation as ITN's political editor and trusted by politicians of all parties. He impressed uh, by impressed by his reputation at Westminster, the editor of the Times, Harold Evans, persuaded him to make the unusual move from broadcast to print journalism in 1981 to become the political editor of the Times. Julian describes what happened in his typically crisp and succinct style. I've done quite a lot of time with uh, ITN. I was enjoying myself. I got a call out of the blue from Harry Evans, the Times editor then, whom I'd always greatly admired. And you don't turn down the offer of editorship at the Times or political editorship. So I didn't. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't turn down the offer of a job as political editor of the Times. And Julian threw himself into reporting on the, the difficult early days of the Thatcher government, regularly taking calls from senior ministers without having to ring them himself. But he didn't find the move into print journalism entirely straightforward. He was used to summing up stories in a few hundred words for a TV broadcast and now had to write stories that could be longer than a thousand words. The lead column of the time, you had the lead with two columns, perhaps 1,500 words. There's the lead story on television would be... Five, six hundred words who were lucky. The great thing is they couldn't cut you off on telly. Once you promised to go for 500 words or no more, you were free to go and go and go and drive everyone nuts. Well, on times, it was Buzzball sub-editor, still is, I'm sure, who had the last word. When I went to the times, Ian Aitken, who I mentioned, was lovely. And I said, I'm not going to know how to film he says, it did easy to never use one word where 17 will do. <laughs> it was good rule, so I used to use 17 words in one. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the sub-editors loved you. Um, which do you prefer? Did you prefer working in TV or in print? TV was easier because uh, you were always, deadlines weren't so pressing. I was shocked by how soon if you were going to make the front page you had to have your copying on the Times. Whereas without you, with the main news tennis it always was, you could walk in 
the last moment and spoke and as I say never to stop and so it was easier and you you thought the poor newspaper people are going to have to catch up because the events I'm describing they'd have had to write about at seven o'clock and here am I with an update at two minutes to ten so tell it was much easier Judy they're summing up the differences between broadcast and print journalism Although I have to say, I, I don't think I've ever been told at the Times, <laughs> never use one word when 17 will do. They'll definitely uh, cut that out. Uh, you are listening to episode two of The Political Editors and the final interview with the former Times political editor, Julian Haviland, who died earlier this month. Now, Julian spent the bulk of his career at Westminster from the 1960s until his retirement in the 1980s. I asked him which politicians he remembered as the most powerful speakers in the Commons. I remember the ones who were genuinely eloquent, and so they had the potential of changing the other side's mind. Tony Benn was a very remarkable speaker. We've tried to make capitalism work with good and humane labour governments, and we haven't succeeded because it can't work, because it rests on injustice. Ron Walden, later became a television presenter, those three sound, oh, I know the most eloquent of all, a man called John P. McIntosh, who was Labour MP for the marginal seat of Berwick, and was, didn't last long because it was a very marginal seat. But he could hold any audience in his hand. And they're not people who made high office, but they're very, very competent speakers and, uh, and good, good people. I remember them. I mean, they, Press gallery upstairs was empty. If the name Ben came up on the enunciator, as we then called it, I think we more subtle than they were internal television. And everyone rushed down to the chamber to hear these people speaking. There weren't many of those. We need to just out the names Tony Ben, Brian Ward, and John P. McIntosh for the MPs that would send journalists uh, scurrying to the gallery to listen to them. Well, some of his favourite politicians, like any journalist, were the talkative ones. But sometimes they told him things he was unable to publish. This is Julian describing what happened when Cecil Parkinson, Margaret Thatcher's trade and industry secretary, told him a story during the Falklands War, which Julian worried would put lives at risk. I like the blabby ones because they're so useful. And I sought out the discreet politicians. Sometimes they sort me out because um, they were the kind of people who liked getting publicity. A very good example was Cecil Parkinson. At the time of the Falklands War, Margaret Thatcher had an inner cabinet, as you expect, of Foreign Secretary, Defence Secretary, Chiefs of Staff, and Cecil Parkinson, who was relatively inexperienced with Secretary of State for Industry, I think, and um, she adds him too. He knew nothing about warfare or anything. She just, she liked him. She thought he was a handsome fellow, which I dare say he was. And there came a time when I encountered him in the lobby and she always wanted to talk to me, had something to say. And at the meeting that morning of the war cabin, they had discussed, they'd heard that one of the farmers in East Falkland, had rigged up a Skyway aerial by linking his um, transmitter to the top fence 
of his paddock and is sending back top-class information to the government about um, where the arches were, how many, what strength they were in, and said, well, it was a good story, as it was. And we were all, this is a time when the fleet, you may not remember this, Matt, they were in the South Atlantic on their way to Falklands, but none of us knew where they were or when or where they'd land. We saw under pressure from editors like my then editor, Charlie Jones, who, to write a story about this. And you had nothing to say. You knew nothing about it. And Cecil told me this story. I thought, not last, I got a story. It was an hour before deadline. So I raced upstairs to the lobby room, uh, uh, Times lobby room, and before I got there, I suddenly realized I couldn't print it because the arches would certainly spotted the man and he'd be dead with a week shot. So I ran down where Cecil had already found someone else, Jim Whiteman, dead telegraph. And I broke the rule, which is that you, if we see a journalist talking in the lobby, you don't interrupt the conversation. If something confidential may be advancing. And I collared them both and said, Look, Cecil, if you were just telling Jim, I speak to her, what you tell me 10 minutes ago, you mustn't tell him. And Jim looked puzzled. But then soon the penny dropped with Jim. It never did drop with Cecil. <laughs> I said, if we print this story, we're sensing this man to death. It's a good story. It's a pity to let it go, but we have to drop it. You know, people always say to you, a journalist will stop at nothing, totally unprincipled, and will get any story out. This was an account, I think, of the fact that journalists aren't totally indiscreet. It was minister which being indiscreet. And we were being rather good. Amazing story from Julian Howard explaining that when he was the political editor of the Times, he didn't publish a story about a farmer in the Falklands transmitting information on the location of the Argentine fleet for fear it would put the farmer's life in danger. And he had to try and stop the blabby, in his words, Cabinet Minister Cecil Parkinson from briefing other journalists on it. Well, senior journalists were always keen to speak to him as the political editor of ITN because they felt it allowed them to reach ordinary men and women. Margaret Thatcher was no different. Here is Julian interviewing her on the television in July 1980. Prime Minister, I think people would expect me to ask you about unemployment. May I ask you first how much higher you think it'll go? I don't know. I've never been a politician who forecast unemployment. I do fear it will go higher next month, and I fear it will stay high for quite a time, as it did on the last occasion when we had a sudden increase in unemployment. But I can't give you a maximum figure. Well, a year later, uh, Julian left uh, ITN to join The Times as political editor, and he found he had to wait a little longer for an interview with the Prime Minister. Here's what happened. And the time came when I last got an interview with her. I was told the Prime Minister would see me now, rather graciously. So I went along, saw her, and uh, we and I hadn't seen her for a year, so he covered lo- all the bases. And after she finished, she took an extremely large scotch. Her husband, Dennis, was the one who said to drink like a drain. But Margaret had quite a capacity. So when I got back, Charlie Douglas, whom the then editor, who was interested, said, how did it go? 
Well, I think I must have shaken a little bit, I said, with the forcefulness of my questions, because after I finish, she had a very large whiskey indeed, and before I get my lips to mine, she was halfway through a second bed hours with me. So I must have made an impression. Charlie said, you fool, Jordan. You've forgotten what day it is, haven't you? And it was Tuesday evening at five o'clock or what. And her next engagement was a weekly audience for the Queen at six o'clock. And the one person in the world of whom Margaret Thatcher was frightened was the Queen. And that's why she downed a lot of whiskey. And I thought myself that she was nervous about me. Not a bit of it. The Queen takes an intense interest in every aspect of life in our country. And she brings to bear a formidable grasp of current issues and a tremendous breadth of experience. Her guidance and advice are always most acute. And as Prime Minister, I was privileged to benefit from both enormously. Amazing. It wasn't nerves after all about it, it being interviewed by Julian that led Margaret Thatcher to have a couple of stiff drinks, but the prospect of her weekly audience with the Queen. And probably the most remarkable story that Julian told me also involves the late Queen. It goes back to 1984, when the Battle of Orgreave saw a violent confrontation between striking miners in South Yorkshire and thousands of police officers from around the country. During the miners' strike, you remember the occasional real flashpoints, and there was a famous event at Orgreave Coking Depot near Rotherham. Thatcher was determined to break the strike, and they got in as many as 8,000 pickets collected by Arthur Scargill to stop the lawyers going in and out of the depot with the coke. And 5,000 policemen from all over the country and a goodly number of mounted police who had nothing whatever to do with Rotherham or Austin, as it were. And um, the Queen was watching this on telly. And when the horses went in and rode through some of the miners and knocked through down, and the Queen said words to that, oh, that's awful. Oh, she didn't do that. And the Queen, at the height of the vexed strike, she didn't make a political comment like that, was news. And Charlie Douglas Hume, my editor then, who had the most astonishing contacts, being related to the heir to the throne and being, and being a Douglas Hume, Told me one afternoon that he'd heard that the Queen at the dinner party the previous night had said this. Julian said, a good story, isn't it? I said, yes. You will stand it up for me and write it by six. And I said, I think if you know the facts, you should write it yourself as a special correspondent or something. No, I can't do that. I said, you do it. I said, well, I'll come the rest. may not be that easy. And the rest of the day I spent trying to find out and it turned out there were only two other people in the room when she said it. She had said it, and I felt absolutely firm. So I went back to Charlie. One was um, the Queen's private secretary, Robert Fellows, and the other was George Younger, secretary for Scotland, who I knew to be a friend of Charlie anyway. 
And anyway, I threw the story up beyond doubt. And I went back to her and I said, you perhaps ought to know before we go any further with this. So only two people have heard that. Okay, he said, we'll drop it. I spent six hours sweating. I felt terribly pleased to have stood it up. But it wasn't used. Absolutely extraordinary. Uh, Julian Havland telling about the story he couldn't publish. The Queen expressing a disapproval, uh, disapproval of the police action at Orgreave at the height of the miners' strike. But because there were only two people at the dinner, one of them a cabinet minister, one of them a private secretary to uh, the Queen, if the story had been published, uh, it would have been obvious who it had come from. Well, Julian retired from daily journalism in 1986. I just left because I had an I'd done, I'd been around Westminster for 20 years, and I thought life must have something more to offer. And so it was. And it really did. He and his family loved Scotland where they lived, and he went on to produce two books, and as recently as last year, wrote for the Times Red Box. Uh, Julian Haviland died on August the 11th at the age of 93, and I have to say it was a real privilege to be able to, to hear his reflections on being political editor of ITN and then political editor of The Times. Uh, and uh, I was, yeah, I felt very lucky to be able to, to speak to him and uh, to be able to bring you the interview today. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes of The Political Editors. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.